Free Therapy. I'm here as well as Barry and our very, very special guest who we'll get to in a minute. Um, I cannot stress how awesome she is for doing this at the last minute because we were planning to have her on anyway. And uh, and um, a friend had a had a urgent thing that she had to attend to, and I'm I'm so thankful. Um, first up front, I I want to tell this one story because my mom came to me recently and said, "You know, when you were a kid, your teachers thought that we hit you, and I had to clarify that that wasn't the case." <laughs> And that's when I remembered something, that I did something that only a shrinks kid would ever think to do, which is, I was mad at you guys about something. Mm-hmm. I, I have no idea what. Uh-huh. Um, who knows? It obviously wasn't important enough to do this. Um, but what I did was, inst- I wanted my parents to, th- I wanted my teachers to think that my parents hit me. <laughs> so instead of telling my teachers that, that my parents hit me because I knew they wouldn't believe me, Whenever I did something wrong, I started hitting myself because I thought, oh, they'll think she thinks this is normal. And they did. <laughs> and I just, Dad, I, I just want to say sorry right now. Um, <laughs> it's not something a typical seven-year-old would do or a typical parent of a seven-year-old would have to deal with. <laughs> so I'm just amazed that you had the ingenuity to even think of that. Like, I, most, when I was that age, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have even occurred to me to get my parents in trouble by such a devious uh, method. Not only did I do that, but when they asked me what was going on at home, I held my eyes open long enough so that they'd tear up. From the- <laughs> I'm sorry for that as well. Well, I'm sorry you were so angry at us and that you couldn't just tell us that you you were. (laughs) I don't know what you did. It's all right. For those of you uh, out there who are parents, parenting is tough. You you never quite know what's going on until your kid's 27. (laughs) Oh, I'm older. We're 26. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Yesterday, I spent the day... um, crying in front of the mirror while a friend pulled out all my gray hairs. So <laughs> thank you for those students. And, <laughs> You're welcome. Um, yes. Cause I know it wasn't mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I turned gray in my twenties. <laughs> it's, it's all right. It's coming in streaks like rogue. So it actually looks kind of cool. That's what I had been hoping for. Just yeah. my father went silver and that was gorgeous. But my grandmother had like a single streak in the front and I really wanted that, but I'm probably going to get, like, the salt and pepper fallout hair panic my mom's getting right now. Yeah. It's too bad, because those streaks look so cool. <clears throat> I do. I, I would never dye it. Um, or dye it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, who you just heard was Vanessa Gritton, who's awesome, and she has her own podcast. Thank you. And, um, tell us about that. It's called Performance Anxiety. Uh... For some reason, the adult film stars on the podcast laugh at that way more than the comics do. <laughs> but basically, we switch it between interviewing somebody in the adult industry or somebody in comedy and then talking about uh, their first experiences performing and also some of their first sexual experiences. And what I tried to do when I started the podcast was try to show people that how you start is not how you end up and it's not something that defines you. It's just your first step on a much bigger road. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast, and 
that's what I'm hoping is happening. Mm. <laughs> um, it's. I was talking to a friend about the podcast, and he just got really quiet, and I couldn't figure out why. He said, it sounds like you don't know what you're doing, and I'm scared for you. And I said, it's because I don't. Mm. <laughs> so that's where I'm at. It's, we don't either. No. It's, you can tell. Um, but that's such an amazing idea for a podcast. I think um, I think adult film stars and comedians are very similar in that yeah. it's, it's kind of different forms of exhibitionism. Of exactly. Mm. It's really fascinating because adult film stars put their, put their bodies out there and they're very naked, but with a comic, we're very raw in that we're pulling out our heart and putting it on the altar of entertainment. And it's almost like two different people with the exact same choices in a choose-your-own-adventure book, but with completely different outcomes. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of interesting similarities between the two, and I'm super excited for when more episodes come out for those things to come to light. Yeah, yeah. that sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Right. It does, yeah, it sounds really <laughs> exciting. So, um, I know you had some stuff to talk about while you're yeah. on the podcast. Uh, basically, what I was looking to talk about, and it's something that's happening right now. I have several unanswered text messages in my pocket. Uh, I'm at a point where I've been married for three years, but I've been with my husband for about seven, eight now. Uh, and I know I've been with comedy less, but it's coming to the point where it feels like I have to choose and I don't want that. But I can't keep doing both things halfway and disappointing everyone. Especially myself in this situation. And my husband is currently stationed in Korea. But in July, which is much sooner than I thought he was coming home, we're being restationed in New York, and I brought to him that I don't want to go. When it it comes to comedy, I feel like I'm both on the precipice of something great and setting a match to everything I've ever known. And I don't want to say that I pick comedy, but it's not that I'm picking comedy, it's that I'm picking myself. And I would love to find a way that we can make it work, but at the same time... It's, are we making it work to prolong the inevitable? So, I have no idea. What would be wrong with being in New York as opposed to L.A.? Since uh, New York is a big center of you know comedy as well. It's not that part of New York. Oh, I'd oh be you're about, talking about New York State. Yeah, I'd uh, be an hour from Ottawa. Oh, Ottawa. Oh, and I'm not sure how the Ottawa comedy is <laughs> Right. I love me some hockey, but... Got it. Uh, and the thing is... Before that, we were moving near Seattle, which I was very excited about, and I can continue doing comedy. But at the same time, it's terrifying that your relationship can hang so delicately depending on where the other spouse is sent. To where it's, oh, that's fine, I can still do comedy there, or I'm sorry, I can't go with you, and I need you to wait for me. And at the same time, while I can do it anywhere, I've built a family of comedians here. And I know I can find that elsewhere, but, and I know it's strange to say people that I've known for such a little amount of time have become like my family and my soulmates, but the thing is with other comedians, it's, we're all the same group of people that answered the dog whistle no one else heard. Mm-hmm. Our ears all perked up for the same thing and no one else could hear it, but we did. And we speak the same language and we understand each other in a way that not everybody else does. And... I've had that taken away from me, and it's terrifying because it's like moving to a different country, but nobody else, no matter what you do, will understand your language. Mm-hmm. And 
anytime I found another comic in, in El Paso is the last studio station I was, it's like being in a foreign land and you hear someone speaking English and you just kind of latch on. And I'm, I miss that when I'm gone because... I'm basically gone from LA. Yeah, when I'm gone yeah. from LA, I'm basically mm-hmm. pantomiming to everybody else, just like, please understand me. Mm-hmm. And I don't get that. Mm-hmm. And I had stopped doing comedy for a year, and it was the worst year of my life. Mm-hmm. Like, easily. I've had other years where I've had big deaths, something horrible happened, but taking away comedy was like lo- Thor losing his hammer. It was. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. it it's just a core part of your identity. Though. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it took no long for me to realize how much I need it and what a big part of it is for me. Yeah. I, you know, one, one way in which I can <clears throat> echo that is that every comedian I've ever treated has in one way or another said that, mm-hmm. that doing comedy is as core to their psyche and their sense of self as oxygen is to their body. Mm-hmm. Like, they can't do without it, really. And, you know, as parents... Mom and I really began to recognize, um, as you got more and more into comedy, that you had been born to it. It wasn't that you had, you know, discovered it among many different options. It was, there was, in fact, Mom is famous for saying, famous, but (laughs) among our friends, she's famous for saying that there was no choice. It was, it was, it was your... Uh, it's inevitable. It's your DNA, you know, in a sense. And I do think there's something to that, um, and, uh, and it's really important. Now, just just so we get a sense of... What's your husband's name? James. W- what is his core objection to your continuing to do comedy? Is it just geographical, or...? At one point, I thought it was just geographical, because... He's constantly moving around, and something that would take me away from him is is also terrifying to him. And he he wants that proximity. He moves so frequently, and his life, just like mine, is frequently uprooted. I can say that I constantly give up friends and family just to follow him, but the thing is, he has nothing. He also he's frequently more alone than I am. Mm-hmm. So I I very much understand why he wants me there, mm-hmm. but. Also, I think... Wait, let me, under, let me yeah. just ask you about that. When you say he has nothing, does he get moved by himself, or does he get moved as part of a unit or group that he's, that he's part of? By himself. Oh, really? So, yeah. sometimes he'd go with units, but more than frequently, he's put into a completely new unit with people wow. he's never met before. Wow. Uh, that's the case with Korea now. That's going to be the case when he goes to New York, and it's going to be the case when he actually has to go back to Iraq in February. Wow! So he uh, really is yeah. alone. It's yeah. Not, yeah. He doesn't have people that he trained with. These are people that he's never met before, over mm. and over again. Mm. So I know I understand why that's terrifying for him, and it's the worst when you both understand. Yes. It's it's the worst when you both understand, and everything that hurts to say isn't said shouting. Because when you're shouting, it's in the heat of the moment. You can take it. I'm not. I'm not saying you can take it back, but it's something that you would normally say. What's scary is the stuff that you say logically and calmly, because you know you've been really chewing on it for a while. And I think not just geography, but this is something I said earlier, where my husband like made the mistake of marrying a woman that is both ambitious and selfish and a little bit stupid sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but there is no end game for me. There is no wait for me this long. Because it's not, I'm going to hit this point, 
and then I'm going to settle down and do that do that thing with you. I don't see an end game. I just it's not point A and point B. It's just an arrow in one direction and I don't know where it goes. Mm-hmm. And even if we do end up living in the same place, he's not going to see me at night. Mm-hmm. And my days are going to be consumed by doing what I preparing for what I do at night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh so in a lot of ways I'm like a vampire. <laughs> I'm sucking the life right out of them, and I'm asleep in the daytime. <laughs> when you guys fight about this, tell me what you say to each other. Like how how bad does it get? Uh, it can go two ways, and I actually prefer the yelling loud way than the quiet. We both know what needs to be said, but we don't want to say it kind of way. Because when it's yelling and it's loud, it's both feeling like we're punishing each other for things that we've done in the past and at the same time it's almost like why would you fall in love with someone that is so your polar opposite in all of your desires and hopes it's almost like we're mad for the other one being so goddamn lovable mm. <laughs> explain that more like what do, what do you yell at each other what is the what's the substance of one of these arguments it's almost never deprecating it's usually like um all right, if, if it's going in the direction of deprecation, it's one of us bringing up something the other one had done in the past, which is like. a big no-no. For me, it's the first time I started doing comedy. It's something that he constantly brings up because he felt like I completely detached. And honestly, I did. I detached from everything I knew because I was restarting a relationship with myself. Mm. I had forgotten who I was, and I had been trying to continuously fill it with other people's ideas of where I should be in my life and what maybe are more societal standards of where I should be. And then I started doing comedy and as ridiculous as it sounds, it felt like that Shel Silverstein poem that people tell little girls about when they're trying to find their soulmate, about the missing piece rolling around for another chunk. And for me, it wasn't a person. For me, comedy was that missing piece. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it happened, it something clicked. And I was learning so many new things about myself. I was, I was the soulmate that I'd been looking for. So he brings up your discovery of comedy as a kind of and throws it up to you as like an abandonment of him. Yeah, got it. He feels he feels like and he is very justified in feeling that way, like he was abandoned. Mm-hmm. Because for all me saying no, I was still there. I still called you. I still sent letters and packages mm-hmm. and. I was going through emotions, but honestly, I did emotionally abandon him. Mm-hmm. I, I did that to everyone, mm-hmm. to my friends and family, because after going my whole life putting myself on the back burner for everybody else mm-hmm. and being easily giving up everything for everyone else, that my first chance that I had to where I was like, this is for me, I said goodbye to everything and I threw myself right into it. Now, you're speaking about this as if it's in the past. Do you feel like um, since that period, your heart has reopened to him and that you're in the relationship and, and, and really like connected to him? Or have you maintained that kind of distance? See, that's where it gets tricky. Because um, after I first started doing comedy, I honestly... And I... I haven't really discussed this with him in length, but I honestly thought that was it for me. I honestly thought it, it's going to end here. He's going to, because he was deployed at the time, it's, he's going to come home 
and I'm going to tell him what I need to do in order to be happy. And then I saw him get off that plane, and that whole thought got pushed away because I was already in Texas, and comfort came into play. Because the thing is, when it comes to comedy, you have to very frequently sacrifice comfort for for self-fulfillment. Yeah. And I looked at his eyes, and I saw I saw comfort. I saw something that was simple, and it was love, and it was being taken care of. And I forgot all about those thoughts, and I dove right back into it. Mm-hmm. And I dove right back into my relationship for a year. But the thing is, without comedy, he was all I had. Mm-hmm. So I very much threw myself deeply back into him because that and was out of comedy or not. Out, not so much out of comedy because I still kept trying to do comedy in Texas. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't close to where my home base was, so mm-hmm. to speak. And I wasn't so much leaving comedy, it's that I couldn't do it. Now, I'm paying really close attention to the words you're using, which predominantly had to do with comfort and mm-hmm. security. Did love have anything to do with it? Absolutely. It did. So you love him. Very much. Okay. So it wasn't just comfort. You looked into his eyes and you saw a guy you want to be with. Yeah. One okay. of the most amazing people I've ever met. I mean, the most amazing person I've ever met. Someone with a capacity for compassion and empathy that I've never known Mm. and I grew up whenever something was happening to me I didn't really have a defense Mm -hmm. not just myself I never had anybody that would come in defense of me Mm -hmm. and the reason I used the word comfort was because for the first time in my life I had somebody in my corner Mm -hmm. and that's what he was and that's what he is He'll always be someone that's in my corner, no mm-hmm. matter what. Even if I'm basically fighting myself, he's he's in my corner for my best interest. And that's what makes it worse, because I love someone so deeply, and then I don't think I'm the person that can make them fulfilled and happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, growing up, I always had this struggle where I felt like... Uh, to men and, and women, basically anybody that I dated, I was... Less someone they took home to mom and dad and more like a really cool tapestry or something interesting they got on vacation. Where it was, look at this nifty thing that I have. Isn't she weird and awesome and neat? But it's probably going to get stored into the garage later just because it's neat while it's there. But I don't want to deal with it and I don't want to maintain it. And he was the only person that looked at me and didn't see interesting tapestry or illegal chimpanzee. Uh, (laughs) He looked at me and he saw someone he could build a life with. Mm-hmm. And that's that was the first time you'd ever really experienced that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I never had somebody look at me and look at everything else about me as opposed to face value. Mm-hmm. Where he wanted to, he very much wanted to find like the most raw, neurotic parts of me that I wasn't showing anyone. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time he said that my greatest quality was my neurotic compulsion to make others happy because it was very sweet. And I was like, you see that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, you saw that? Because I try and push that down. Mm -hmm. But he was seeing things about me that nobody saw, things that I lied to myself about that Mm -hmm. I said didn't exist. He saw all of it. Mm -hmm. He saw that I had basically turned manipulation into a defense mechanism for not being able to... uh, defend myself in a lot of cases mm-hmm. uh he completely saw through the fact that it's not so much humorous deflection for me because i'm not deflecting anything that mm-hmm. humor is how i tackle a situation mm-hmm. and he saw everything that everybody else missed because of 
the fact that I enter a room like a bull in a china shop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and can I tell you what I think is going on here? And tell me if I'm wrong, because mm-hmm. I, you know, I, obviously this is the first time I've met you, but. Um, I think in your mind, you've created a false dichotomy between your career and your marriage. And the false dichotomy goes deeper than that. I think that deep down inside, you don't really believe that you can be all in, in your career, and at the same time, love someone completely and feel secure Mm -hmm. in their love. It's almost like the way you talk makes it sound like this compromises this Mm -hmm. and um, in some way will prevent it from happening and is a threat to it. Now, if I'm right about that, and that's not something you planned consciously to do, but but Mm -hmm. maybe going on unconsciously, then for a long time, you've actually been withholding from him. Because on some level, you see him as a threat to your career. Mm -hmm. And I think it's possible that even though he's expressing this in terms of geography, what he really may be saying is, I don't really feel like you love me anymore. Mm -hmm. Like something happened when you went into comedy where you cut off a part of yourself from me. And I miss that part of you wherever we are geographically, you know, kind of thing. Now... Does that make any sense? No, it absolutely does. Okay. That's getting squinty shrink eyes right now. So you're not, you're not <laughs> no, it makes, it does make a lot of sense because uh, something else that I didn't introduce to this situation that I probably should have was um, I'm a lot younger than I look and act. How I old are you? just turned 23 two days ago. Wow. You are young. Yep. And I've been So you've known him since you were 15, 16 yep. years old. Since huh? I was 15, 16. Wow. So he's been a constant. And I was married when I was 19. Wow. And he sees it as me changing. And I'm thinking, that's just, I'm just doing what everybody my age does. I'm growing. Yeah. I didn't know who I was when we got married. Yeah. And it's scary for me just because it's also, I see somebody with, I feel like such an asshole sometimes and that I see he has so much potential to do whatever he wants and then I forget he doesn't want that. He doesn't want to go where his potential wants to go and that's okay. It's it's okay for him to just want to be content living with whatever job he has for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And I've been a bit of a jerk about that before where I'm acting like why don't you want to why don't you want to do what is your furthest for potential? Mm-hmm. Do you and, understand that's like the equivalent of his asking you to stop doing comedy? I did not. <laughs> Does it make sense to you? Yeah. You understand? You're asking him to be someone that he's not. Yeah, I was. And I that's was. as much of a rejection and makes mm-hmm. him feel as rejected as you feel when he expresses things wrongly mm-hmm. in terms of you being a comedian. Yeah. It's, look, to me, this is pretty clear. These are, these are the normal growing pains of a marriage especially a, an early marriage where people, I'm not sure people are ever fully formed, but you know, you definitely not fully formed at yeah. 16, or, you know, whatever, even at 18, I'm 61 and I'm not fully formed. So, you know, it's, 
Um, you're 61? Yeah. I, I owe you a birthday card. I'm sorry. Yeah, you forgot this year. <laughs> I'm outing her on the podcast. It's fine. Don't worry. Um, it's cool. My parents said I was 14 two years in a row from 15 to 16. <laughs> two years in a row. Yeah, earlier on this podcast, Dad said I was 27. Yeah, yeah. parents get addled. <laughs> it's really true. Well, there's seven of us, so it's understandable. Oh, my God. oh wow. So, you know, what I, what I feel is really going on here underneath the surface is a cycle. And you could start with either one of you. Mm-hmm. I think he feels you pulling away from him and wrongly focuses on your career, mm-hmm. which then makes you feel threatened, like your autonomy is being taken away from you, your, your identity is being taken away from you, which then you respond to badly by... It's very subtle, but I think you just close your heart to him and insist that he be a different person than who he is, which then increases his sense of rejection. And then it's a cycle on your own. It's a cycle. And look, the problem with these cycles is that they almost always end in what you described as yelling, arguing and hostility. And you really eloquently put something that most people don't put into words, which is, we're actually more comfortable doing that because at least there's a negative connection Mm. than when we're just sad and trying to muddle through this and we're questioning whether there is any connection or whether we can build one. It's actually, weirdly enough, more comfortable to fight because at least you're tussling with each other. It feels like you're still trying to fight for something. Yes, yes. Now, let me give you a third way, like the middle way here Mm. between fighting and giving up or just resigning yourselves to it, which is, this is a period in which both of you have to express love. And, you know, that sounds so trite. And it really means more than just words. It means you have to expose yourselves vulnerably to one another and really give from the heart to one another for what the other is doing and what the other wants, irrespective of whether you can fit into it or not. In other words, each one of you needs to feel from the other that basic kind of goodwill that every really good friendship has, which is, I want the best for you no matter what, no matter what, even if it carries you away from me. Now, that's obviously much easier in a friendship than it is in a marriage because there's so much more at stake, but it's what's called for in a marriage even more so than in a friendship because you really love each other and on some level you really do want the best for one another. Now, if I'm being vague, you know, tell me so I can, cause I can give you more specific ways of implementing that. No, I but, completely understand that. Okay. Because whenever I have that conversation with myself where it's like, I really do deeply want him to be happy and fulfilled in every aspect of his life. It's terrifying. Cause I feel like I'm not the one to do that. Right. right. I love him so much and I want the perfect woman from. Right. And I don't think I'm that person. Right. Because... Now stop for a moment. I want to quote you Mm. when you talked about the podcast Mm. being something that's sort of a work in progress. You can't know what's going to happen with the podcast. Mm -hmm. Not only that, you can't even know how it will evolve. Mm -hmm. So whether or not you're the right woman for him... That's not, you're not qualified Mm. to even think about that, let alone have an opinion about it. 
That's why I say your job is really not to have any opinion. It's really just simply to express the love to him, to say something like, look, I know this is hard, and I know that I withdrew from you mm-hmm. unfairly because I felt like you were a threat to the identity that I was forging you know, for myself. But I want to stop doing that and let's take it one step at a time and see where this goes. Maybe there's a way, mm-hmm. even though we're separated from one another, where we can forge a kind of an invisible bond that's just so strong that solutions will come to us that we can't even think of right now. Yeah. Or maybe we'll be okay with things as they are if we just feel closer mm-hmm. you know, to one another. Absolutely. This is much less of a geographical problem than you think it is and than he thinks it is. It's, look, I don't fault you because everybody goes to that first. It's because it's such an obvious problem, you know. Yeah, Occam's razor would suggest that. Exactly. God, where, what, how did you find with Occam's razor? My God. Oh, yes, Dad, I can have smart friends. No, it's not that. I've been sorry, I since I was like 13, so. Wow. My mother used to call me Matilda. I was that childhood <laughs> character. And it was the only time that I wish my name changed. <laughs> so impressive. But you get what I'm, what I'm saying? I wouldn't focus on what seems like the... Um, the most relevant solution, which mm. is either ge- geography or, you know, him accepting you or you accepting him. It's more, how can we connect to each other right now in a text on the phone, you know, w- in the way that we talk to each other so that we get in touch with the core of our relationship and make that as strong as possible. Because look, whatever happens, whether you stay together or whether you, whether you divorce, mm-hmm. You're going to want to do it in the right way. Absolutely. You want to do it with love, with, with best wishes, you know, for one another. And that's what you have to hold on to. And that's the first thing to go when differences start to emerge. Mm-hmm. You'll also be setting a precedent for the rest of your lives because, you know, what you think, again, I'm 61, what you think you are at this age, I guarantee you, you won't be in 10 years. Hopefully you won't be because you want to continue evolving. Absolutely. So there needs to be room for that for both of you. Maybe he's kind of more of a homebody right now. And in three years, he's going to find something and go through exactly what you went through. Mm-hmm. Like a whole identity change. If the, if the core connection comes first, then the relationship has the breathing room for that to happen. Because... Mm-hmm. I, I very frequently wish that he had found something that's similarly just because he feels like he's at a standstill and I'm making leaps and bounds every time I'm back here because I really do flourish when I'm here. Right. Uh, but also another thing that comes into play is I grew up in a household where I had to lie about me all the time. I had to hide who I was. I had to... And Why her, was that? Um... I have a, my father is equal parts uh, Atticus Finch and Greg Kennard's character from Little Miss Sunshine, uh, in that he raised me with the determination for me to be as deceptively cunning and smart and charming as a Kennedy, but I came out like the worst bush. Uh, <laughs> he had so many high hopes in me, and he 
there's seven of us, and after like the first few messing up, he put all his time and energy into me being something else, and I didn't want any of it. And he also grew up very conservative and with ideas of what a woman should be, and also very, very paranoid. Mm. Very paranoid. Like, to the point where I couldn't even glance at a stranger, I couldn't take the school bus out of fear, and he'd have these like hyper-terrifying paranoias of where he'd be watching the news and he was positive exactly what he just saw was going to happen to me and I wouldn't go to school for like three days. Mm. Uh, I remember him... He was afraid you were going to be kidnapped, Kidnapped, raped, killed, whatever. raped, all of it. And Got he would it. express these things to me. Mm. Like, I would you try to use the were rest... Were you the first girl in the family? I was the second girl. Second but girl. the first girl that he had to interact he with all the really, time. Because the first girl, uh, she was raised by her mother... And my father was working in Los Angeles. So I was the first girl uh, that he had full-time. Right, right. And he was he, really a father. Exactly. Too. And he would express these paranoias to me. Hmm. Uh, he would tell me, don't go to the bathroom on your own. You might get kidnapped and raped. And I'm like, I am seven and I just want chicken, chicken fingers. <laughs> this is not what I needed to hear, Dad. Right. But he would tell me these things. Right. And at the same time, like, that and then... Uh, By the way, just I'm sorry to yeah. keep interrupting, but do you understand the connection between that kind of upbringing, which is um, it really puts you in a box? Yeah. You know, do you understand that the connection between that and your reaction to your husband and what he's telling you about comedy? Yes. Because you have an yeah. you have an overreaction to this. It's, I've brought that to his attention, mm-hmm. and he was not happy to be compared to that. Oh, what yeah. I mean is that you're overreading threats mm. to your autonomy because they happened in your childhood. Mm. You're reacting to it as a child, not as an adult. Yeah. Your husband can't take away your autonomy the way your father did. Exactly. He's and not your father, and you're not a kid. And I lash out the exact same way. <laughs> yeah. And you've got to apologize to him for that and oh, stop absolutely. doing it. Stop. It's, it's, it's not good for you. And I'm villainizing him. Exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be hard on you. No, I just no, when, no. I, when I catch those I, connections, I, I just want that. you to be aware of it. That, that mm-hmm. always, always happens when, you know, the way you were raised always gets into, like, serious relations. Mm. I, so often, I, like, I will lash out at Dave because I think he's shrinking me. Gee, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder where that comes from. Yeah. <laughs> no, and it's it's absolutely true, and no matter... How much I try to deny it my whole life, sometimes I'll, I'll look at him and I'll be angry for not being able to go somewhere and do something when he has, like, honest concerns about the situation. Mm. Because all I see is me trying to climb out of my balcony window just so I can go see a movie. Right. And... Right. I just want some chicken fingers. I just want chicken <laughs> fingers. Stop telling me all the bad things that can happen to me. Stop. I get so angry when people worry about me. Right. Because I keep mixing it up with paranoia. Right. So when friends and family and my husband express concern about me, instead of thinking, oh, you know what, I'm going to address these concerns and I'm going to comfort you and let you know that I'm fine, right. uh, I revert to six-year-old me and go, I'm going to do it anyway in tenfold. <laughs> yes, right, right. And By the way, yeah. there's a really good protocol for that, um, and it's generally applicable because every human being that's ever been born has some version of this, some way in which they're reacting to an adult situation as if they were still a child with a parent figure, you know, either rebelling against the authority or too submissive or whatever it is. And that is, imagine that there's a part of your personality 
Phil, my co-author, and I call it Part X, and we're going to be writing about it in our next book, that holds on to and responds to current events as if they were happening in the past. Mm -hmm. So in your case, it responds to concern as if it were a threat to your autonomy, Mm -hmm. right? Now, the moment you have that reaction, what we want you to do is get really good at identifying it. Just literally say to yourself, oh, I just felt Part X. That rage, that desire to attack the person, defend myself, exaggerate, you know, everything. That's part X. Just literally say to yourself, that's part X. It's a part of my personality that responds to really just concern as if it were a threat to my autonomy. Mm -hmm. And do not say anything until you've calmed yourself down. And what you really want to do to calm yourself down is talk yourself down. Like, wait a minute. I'm an adult. I'm 23, 23 years old. Nobody can take away my autonomy anymore. Never again can anyone do that to me. So I don't need to respond to this the way I used to. See, the problem is if you keep responding to that, you don't, in that way, you don't realize it, but you're telling yourself that these are real threats Mm -hmm. because you're responding to it as if it is and you're reinforcing your old dynamics. The only way to overcome them is literally to respond differently. Like you said, thank you for your concern. I'll really take it under advisement. You know, end of story. That's all that needs to be said. Uh, One question that I have for you, just um, because I'm honestly clueless, is I do feel like I need to step away from arguments. Before it escalates, before I Definitely. go so I go in a direction that I don't want to go. He doesn't get that. And a lot of people in my life don't understand that I need to step away. They see me as giving up or I'm tired of this or I've already I'm saying everything by not saying anything. How does one no matter what I say in that I need to step away from this before I do something that I'm gonna regret, how can you properly convey that and that they can actually understand? Two answers to that. So the first, it's a great question. Um, and it, it's really a heartening question because it says to me that you're really interested in, you know, in solving this, mm-hmm. you know, and really overcoming it. So the first answer is what I said earlier about creating a stronger bond between the two of you. That will make it easier to postpone discussions. Because when two people feel connected and feel the love that's between them, it's easier not to feel abandoned when someone says, listen, I don't think it's going to be constructive for me to talk about this right now. Mm. Okay. I promise you, I'll get back to you. The more stronger the love is, the easier it is for the person to say, all right, they're being constructive, even though it doesn't feel good to me right now. And I want to get it resolved right now. I'll let them step away from it. You know, Mm -hmm. kind of thing. The second answer is always start with, I love you. And I don't want this to go bad like it has in the past. Mm -hmm. And part of my commitment to making it better is I need some time to formulate a way to talk to you about this that's not attacking. I promise you I will come back to it in the next 24, 48 hours. That's a really good verbal formulation. I'm not saying that the person will necessarily automatically say, great, that's fine, no problem. But at least you're doing what, what you can do yeah. to reassure the person that this is not an abandonment, which is really, that's the problem that he has to work on is that he feels too abandoned too quickly, something, whatever it is in his background that, you know, that causes that. But it's really important. This is part of sort of giving 
you know, it's like road signs, you know, slow down here. There's a detour here. They're kind of warning you about and telling you what's going on as you're going down the street. Mm-hmm. People need to give each other road signs. Like, I know it's going to feel like I'm abandoning you right now, but I'm really not. I just don't want this to go bad and get really angry and, and get really destructive. And I need to think of a way to say what I'm feeling that won't hurt you, mm-hmm. you know, that will preserve our love rather than destroy it. You know, you could have just said signs. Instead of road signs? Pretty much all signs are indications that something is going to happen. Good point. <laughs> Good point. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take that note under advisement. <laughs> uh, are we on time? Um, we are at 40 minutes. Um... And I think that's a good line. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like... I mean, it sounded that sounded amazing, so... <laughs> yeah, it sounded good Thank to you. me, too. Uh, I feel... I don't know, I feel... I'm excited in that it's nice to actually talk it out in a way that's not, A, screaming at him, or B, telling my mother about it, and then her asking, what did you do? So... <laughs> That's such a mom response. Yeah. God, no. It was her first reaction. What did you do? And then she saw my face and her follow-up to that was, no, no, I just I just want to know what you might have said. I'm like, not even better. <laughs> just digging it deeper. Yeah. Right. We were having a very, it was a, a scream, it was a whispering scream conversation in a laundry room on my birthday. <laughs> oh, no. Oh my god! And then the yesterday when you sent me an invite to this, I was just kind of like, I need it. <laughs> so it was perfect. I'm thank really you. glad we could do this. Thank oh, you so much. Too. You're welcome. And thank you so much for coming on short notice. Yeah, oh my we god, really appreciate it. Um, we have one more thing, which is um, last time we played a game that uh, it went all right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I proved that I know absolutely no current pop culture references yes as a, as a dad shouldn't um, <laughs> but uh, what I have found is a great bastion of terrible humanity and it's called Yahoo Answers <laughs> Yahoo Answers is where terrible people ask other terrible people uh, for advice about their lives and I thought maybe I would bring in some of their terrible questions and you could give them a real answer as opposed to you suck by I'm 14 men's rights now. Um, I'll so, do my best. So I have uh, I have a few questions from the terrible people on Yahoo Answers. Okay. And the first question is, we just got married and my wife is still interacting with other guys. Um, it doesn't get better. Yeah, it's all whole and that's then the question whole. mark. Yeah, it doesn't get better from there. It's uh, we just got married several months ago. We weren't dating long, and we decided to elope rather than uh, elope rather spur of the moment. We love each other. Don't get me wrong. However, after we got married, my wife continued to I- interact with her guy friends. Now they never dated, and she knew them before she knew me. But I believe once you are married, the texting slash messaging slash slash Facebook commenting should stop. <laughs> How can I get her to stop doing this, or am I wrong? 
you suck, I'm 14, goodbye. <laughs> what, what was the answer? That's the answer he deserves. Um, the answers people are giving are, thankfully, you're wrong. Uh-huh. Um, so at least there's that. It's, it's much better than the, uh, the, the girl who wrote in, I sat on a tampon, am I pregnant? And people <laughs> say yes. <laughs> For me, I'm always, I always find it scary whenever people say, how can I get... My partner to do da da da. Yes. Oh, like yeah. a magic combination of words. Oh, that's those are so creepy. Yeah. It's not only yeah. It's a magic combination of words and how can I get so and so to do such and such? Is it's already you're thinking you probably have more power than you actually yeah. do. In other yeah. words, you can say I feel threatened by this. Can you reassure me? I you know feel like it's part of a larger pattern or you know whatever. But you can't really control your partner. And the irony of relationships is that if you succeed, you're worse off than if you don't succeed. Because Absolutely. you never know whether your partner is really giving you the true them or whether they're giving you the version of them that you've coerced them into being. So, does that make sense? Oh, totally. It's... No, this guy, this guy needs to hear that. Um, and a lot of other things, it seems like. It's also really, you know... One thing that I think, because our relationship, our uh, society has become so fragmented, is that it's really important for members of a relationship, a couple, to have relationships, friendships outside of the couple. Mm -hmm. It's really important because you can't get everything from one person. So, texting somebody that you knew before you were together, it's just not, you know. Yeah. It shouldn't be a threat. I mean, I mean, this guy is equating being a husband to a prison warden, basically. Um, but that's Yahoo Answers. And uh, here's... I, I found a, a real question. It took me about three hours. But I found a real question with an actual concern that is not crazy. Um, and the question is, is it wrong that I read my daughter's diary? My daughter is 14, and I've been reading her diary ever since she had one. I don't mean to invade her privacy, but I do it for her protection. I feel like it's wrong because a lot of her thoughts are so raw and out of expression. Is it wrong that I read her diary? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes with an asterisk. Um, If you have exhausted every other means of resolving whatever concern you have with your child and the child is doing things that are dangerous to herself or to other people or whatever, then I suppose as a last resort, I could see there being situations where I would go in and read a kid's diary. But what you really hope for is to build a communication system between a parent and a kid that's more open than that. And it's more voluntary than that. You you lose as much by invading a kid's privacy as you gain in terms of the information that you get on any one occasion. You know, what you do, what you basically do is get the kid to be really good at hiding. Um, or not, worse, not writing in their diary, which is, can be a really effective outlet. Ding, ding. <laughs> Did that happen to you? Yeah. Oh, I got wow. very, very good at hiding. Yeah. 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 I, I changed my voicemail password several times. Yeah. Um, I had a fake but, diary. Oh, wow. Yep. That's oh, what I wrote. Wow. I completely 
different diary that made me look super well adjusted and fine. Oh my god. Oh, that's awesome. As a decoy for the actual diary that I kept in the girls' bathroom in like that sanitary uh, uh, napkin yeah. thing. So, are you yeah. listening, parents? If your, yeah. kid, if your kid is smart enough, they'll find a way around it. It's there's no substitute for honest, open communication. There's an episode of Strangers with Candy where Jerry Blank does that. Oh my god, really? Yeah, yeah. I've and, seen two episodes, and I need to go. I need to throw myself into it. We uh, we had a I I had like a group thing where I had a bunch of people uh, come over and watch it. Um, I think you were busy that day, but um. But uh, I didn't realize that that because it aired in the '90s, they used the F word a lot. Not fuck. Um, ah! The the gay people F word. That's not good to hear in mixed company, especially if some of your guests are gay. Ah! Um, <laughs> so that was fun. <laughs> um, right, I mean, it's in the context of a of a character who's who's horrible. <laughs> All right, I'm going to save the rest of these Yahoo Answers questions for a later date because they are amazing. <laughs> We've got some classics to Oh, come. yes, yes. Um, something about something with someone's cousin is all I'm going to oh! hint at. <laughs> a preview of coming attractions. Yeah. <laughs> she just read it, that's why. She's laughing. Um, and um, that has been three... Free therapy. That has been free therapy. Thanks for listening.